well, towards the end of last year, uh, Brian and I got together and we decided kind of on a, a preaching schedule for this year. And uh, one of the things that we decided that we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that we took some Sundays throughout the year to talk about some things that are kind of current topics in our culture today. And, and these are some things that probably, in a way, we kind of wish would just go away, that we wish we really didn't have to deal with, but, but the fact is we do have to deal with these issues. And, and it's become apparent since the time we put that schedule together that it's even more important that we take some time to do that, as I hope you'll see this morning. Now, there's two reasons that we really did this. The first reason is for all of us. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we want to make sure that we understand what the Bible teaches because we have a world out there around us that's, that's trying to pull us away from that, right? And we need to understand what we believe so that we can have and build these convictions so that we can stand against a world that's increasingly trying to draw us away from what the Bible teaches. So there's some personal benefit in it for us. But there's a second reason. Remember, in the Bible, Jesus calls us to be salt in the world. And in Jesus' day, one of the, one of the purposes of salt was to be a preservative. And so when he calls us to be salt, what he's doing is he's asking us, he's calling us to, to help preserve some of these biblical principles within the culture in which we live. And that's not always an easy thing to do, and we're going to see that this morning with the with the topic that we're going to address. Now, the topic that I'm going to address this morning is one that, that frankly, I think, like I mentioned, I, I think a lot of us hope, would just hope it would go away. But you know what? Since Ryan and I planned this series, and since we planned this particular message, this topic has become even more relevant, even more prevalent in our culture. And there's some things that have happened even over the last couple of weeks and months that I think bring this topic even more to the forefront. Some of you probably saw a week or two ago when uh, the Supreme Court hearings, when Katanji Brown-Jackson came before the committee, and someone asked her to define a woman. And she said, well, I really can't do that because I'm not a biologist. Some of you probably know the, of Leah Thomas, a biological male who won the 500-meter freestyle in the women's women's NCAA swimming and diving championships just last month, some of you might watch the uh, the singing competition on TV, The Voice. In this last season, there was a father and quote son duo. Well, the son is a biological female, and they made it all the way to the to the final rounds of the competition. And these are only some of the things that we we see in our culture and. I'm sure by now you guys understand that what we're going to be talking about today is this whole idea of gender identity. And it's something that we're going to face every day in our culture, so it's up to us to understand what the Bible has to teach about that. And that's really where I want to put our focus today. What does the Bible teach about that? But, But we also need to acknowledge that there are some things out there that we need to understand biologically and culturally as well that are going to help us to be effective in sharing some of these truths with the world around us. I came across a book a couple of weeks ago. I'm by by no means an expert on this topic, believe me. But I came across a book a couple of weeks ago that I found was really interesting and helpful. It's called The End of Gender. It's written by a a lady named Dr. Sandra So. 
And what's really interesting about this book is Dr. So is an avowed atheist. She, she, puts, she says it right in the middle of the book. And yet, she has found more acceptance within the Christian community than she has with some of her peers in the scientific community. Because she dares to actually show that much of the science that, she, that she's done research in, she's a neuroscientist, actually, surprisingly, right? Not surprisingly, that it fits with what the Bible teaches. Now, I, I'm going to tell you right away, I don't agree with everything that, that she wrote in this book by far. There's some areas that, that she's way out of whack with what the Bible teaches. But when it comes to this idea of gender identity, a lot of what she writes actually matches up with the Scriptures. So today I'm going to actually share a few quotes from her book that I think will help us to understand this from a biological perspective as well as a biblical perspective and see how the two actually match up really well. So let's begin this morning by defining some terms. These are some things that we, we need to understand if we're going to really come to grips with this whole thing. And, and these are words that you might hear thrown around, and they're words, frankly, that are misused a lot of times, including I've done it myself, I realized this week. So the first term we want to define is the term sex. And the term sex refers to our biological makeup. And there are only two biological makeups. We are either male or we are female. And, and you've probably heard a lot about how, the, how do you determine this. I mean, how do scientists determine whether you're a male or a female? And there's all kinds of things out there. Uh, some people would say it depends on your physical appearance. Some people talk about your hormonal balance. Some people would say it has to do with chromosomes. And all those are true to some, to some respect. But, but actually, scientists define whether you're a male or a female based on gametes, which are your reproductive cells. And everyone has these reproductive cells. You, if you're a female, you have eggs, the larger cells, which are eggs. If you're a male, you have the smaller cells, which are sperm. And 99.98% of the people that are born in this world, they're unambiguously either male or female. There's very few exceptions to this. So this is not something that's, it is binary. It's not non-binary. It's one or the other. There's no spectrum there. The second word that we need to, to identify or to, to define is the word gender. And the word gender has to use with how our biology is expressed in cultural and social roles. And, and instead of using male and female here, we would use the word man and woman to describe gender. And we're going to see in a moment that the Bible actually does this too. And there's two parts to this, to this gender. The first part is our gender identity. This has to do with how we feel in relation to our biological sex. And then the second part is our gender expression. It's how do we, how do we externally manifest our gender identity. So this would go to things like how we dress, how we talk, uh, how we might do our hair, different things like that. So it would be this, this physical expression of, of, of our biological sex. And it's true in our culture that, that not everyone is going to be 100% in tune with their, with their gender, right? I mean, there's all some, some things. But we're going to see it's not a spectrum either. I mean, think about this. Just because I like to, 
sit down with my wife and watch these cheesy Hallmark rom-coms. It doesn't make me a woman. And just because Mary would rather come to church and participate in a work day than go to a ladies' tea does not make her a man. These things are all, all different to different degrees. And as we're going to see, when God created us, there was sex and there was gender, and these things are they're, they're inextricably linked. And the same thing is actually true when it comes to science. Here's what Dr. So writes about that in her book. She says, biology, not society, dictates whether we are gender typical or atypical. The extent to which we identify as the sex we were born as and the partners we are sexually attracted to. When a sperm fertilizes an egg at conception, the baby will either be female or male. This biology will influence hormonal exposure in the womb as well as the child's resulting gender identity. This is really fascinating to me. Think about this. At about seven weeks, if the embryo is male, the testes will begin to secrete testosterone, masculizing the brain. If the embryo is female, this process does not occur. So what happens is that that the biology of being male or female, it actually impacts the brain. And our brains develop differently. And and she's a neuroscientist, and, and in her book, it's really fascinating some of the information she has about the differences in the way that 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 the brains develop differently in males and females. And that impacts our gender identity. The next term we need to to identify and define is gender dysphoria. This is one you probably hear out there a lot. And it's it's defined, at least within the the science, as a distress caused by a mismatch between a person's gender identity and their sex. So there's, there's something there that's different. But, but this isn't to say that every time, if you have a little bit of question, you young people growing up, you're going to be exposed to this. You might even have some questions about this from time to time. It doesn't mean that you're suffering from gendered dyspho- dysphoria. It's a natural thing to do those to some extent. As a matter of fact, the American Psychological Association or Psychiatric Association, they actually have a definition of what gender dysphoria is. And they actually classify this as a mental disorder. And here's how they they define it. as a marked incongruence between one's experiential or expressed gender and their assigned gender lasting at least six months. So this is something that's that's long, that lasts for a long time. And if you go on to read their definition, they list all these different characteristics that will be present if this is if this is in place. And there's a whole list of them. You've got to have a whole bunch of them before you would be diagnosed with this condition. And it's important to point out, as I, as I just mentioned, that they actually classify this as a mental disorder, which means that there's something here that's different than the way that God made us. They even acknowledge that. And so just because we we have some questions or some doubts from time to time, doesn't necessarily mean that we suffer from gender dysphoria. I really like what Dr. So wrote in her book about this. I think it helps us to put some of this into perspective. She said, girls who are even slightly masculine or who prefer to wear men's clothes because they are more comfortable, some of you can identify with that, right, now believe that this makes them something other than a girl. 
In truth, I'd argue very few women enjoy squeezing into dresses or skirts and having to sit awkwardly in public places so that they don't accidentally flash unsuspecting onlookers. And then this, this is great. This is why sweatpants were invented. (laughs) I hear a few amens out there. That's the loudest amen I've heard in a long time, you know. But it's true, right? So so we need to be really careful here. And I think especially in our in our culture, we find that that young people are struggling with this even more than than people maybe of my generation or your generation. I mean the the extent of gender dysphoria in our culture is very, very small, but among the younger generations, there are some studies that indicate that it could be as high as 15% of people that are struggling in, in some way with this. So, so that's why it's a real thing that we need to deal with. And finally, one last, one last definition before we get to what the Bible says. Transgender is a person who feels that their gender identity is more in line with the opposite sex. And that's what we're seeing, all these examples that I gave to you earlier. Now, before we go any further, let me say something to to two groups of people that might be here this morning. Number one, if, you, if this is an area in which you are struggling yourself personally for some reason, let me say this, God loves you. God created you. He loves you so much that he died on a cross to make it possible for you to have an identity that's found in him. So God loves you. The second thing I want to say to you, if, you, if you're part of that group, is that God wants you to have an abundant life, that he offers a life that's so much better than what you're experiencing right now. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. There's a second group that might be here. There might be some of you now that we've done all these definitions and everything, you're thinking, well, what difference does all this stuff make? Why do I even need to know about this? But the fact is, God has called us to be salt and light in this world. He's called us to take the gospel and to present it to people who are different than we are, even people who we might disagree with. And part of the way that we have to do that is we have to have some understanding so that we can do that. So with all that that background, now let's look at what the Bible has to say about this because that's what's really important. This is what I want you to take away from here today. What does the Bible say about all this? Here's the most important thing. If you don't take anything else away today is this. Only God gets to determine my identity. Man, we live in a culture today where people are going around saying, man, I have the right to determine who I want to be. I mean, I wish that was the case. I would love to play basketball in the NBA, but no matter how much I identify with that, it ain't happening. And the fact is, only God gets to determine our identity. He's the one who created. He's the one who made us. As I talked to the kids about a little bit ago, in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God talks about the fact that that he's like a potter who's taking the clay and creating it just like he wants. So here's what it says in the book of Isaiah. It says, woe to him, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Here's what it says in the New Testament in the book of Romans. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Like I share with the kids, we're, we're the clay. We don't get to turn around to God who is the potter and say, God, make me like this, or God, let me identify like this. God is the one who gives us our identity. And he does that by the way that he forms us and makes us. And we're going to talk in a minute about why that gets messed up sometimes. But that doesn't do away with the fact that only God gets to choose who I am. Only God gives, gets to give me my identity. And so let's go back now to the, to the very beginning and see how God did that. And we find out that at creation, God established, guess what, two sexes, right? Male and female, that's it. There's nothing else on the spectrum. It's not a spectrum, male and female. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, how? Male, female, he created him. That's how God created us. That's the identity that he gave to, to his creation, to the man that he created, he did that from the very beginning. So he's determined that we're going to be either a male or a female. There's no spectrum. One or the other. And as we talked about earlier, in God's creation, that sex matches up with gender perfectly. So it's the second thing we need to see is that at creation, God established how many genders? Two and only two. Man and woman. Now, we've talked about this before. In Hebrew literature, a lot of times it's not written in a chronological or a linear fashion. It's kind of a circular thing. We see this in the creation account. A lot of people read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they're like, well, why are there two different accounts here? Well, what happens is that Genesis 1 kind of gives us the basics, and then in Genesis 2 it circles back around, and, got, and the author now gives us, excuse me, a different perspective of part of that creation process. And in Genesis chapter 2, we now see that our sex and our gender, they align perfectly. Here's what it says in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 2. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Two sexes, two genders. They line up perfectly and equally. That's our identity that God has given to us. And a lot of people will argue, well, well, Jesus never said anything about all this stuff. He never said anything about homosexuality. He never said anything about genders and gender differences. I would beg to differ with you on that. Because Jesus actually goes back and he cites the creation account. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Male and female. Now we know from the Bible that these things line up perfectly. But guess what? Biologically, they also line up perfectly if you're willing to really study the science. Here's what Dr. So writes again. Similar to sex, gender, both with regard to identity and expression, is biological. It is not a social construct, 
nor is it divorce from the anatomy or sexual orientation. Despite what contemporary scholars may have you believe, all of these things are very much linked. Wow, really? Biology, not society, dictates whether we are gender typical or atypical. So why all the confusion in our culture? I mean, this is pretty simple, isn't it? I don't know about you. When I went to school, this was really simple. You're either a male or a female. You're either a man or a woman. Here's why it's so confusing. One little three-letter word, sin. Sin is distorted God's created order. Sometimes that results when somebody is born that that they're atypical, that they're not 100% male or female. It's about 0.02% of the time. So it doesn't happen very often, but it happens. And that's why we have all these people that are confused about gender. It's because sin has messed everything up in this world. It's messed everything up, but it's particularly messed up how we think about who we are when it comes to our sex and our gender. And this is nothing new. We think this is something new that just happened in the last few years. Paul writes about that way back when he wrote the letter to the the churches in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, he writes about the fact that sin had messed up what people were thinking about these things back then. Here's what he wrote. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Because for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's exactly what has happened in our culture. We ought to expect that this is what's going to happen because people have turned away from God. They've rebelled against Him. And God at some point says, okay, you want to rebel against me? Here's the wrath I'm going to pour out on you. I'm going to let you just go after your own desires. I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of this debased mind that you have. And that's what's happened in our culture. And that's why there's all this confusion out there. Frankly, we shouldn't be that surprised. So it seems kind of hopeless, but here's the good news. There is hope. Oh, there is hope. There's hope for the future, and there's hope for right now. The first reason there's hope is because one day God's going to restore all of his created order. He's going to put everything back to the way it was before sin came in and distorted and, and turned our world chaotic. That's going to happen physically. There's not going to be any more people that are going to be born with birth defects. It would mean that they weren't a biological male or a female. People aren't going to be confused about gender anymore. God's going to take and he's going to restore that. He's going to put it back to the way that it was. Here's what Paul writes about that again in Romans Chapter 8, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free 
from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day God's going to, He's going to take this bondage that we're in to sin. He's going, to, he's going to free us from that. We're no longer going to have to deal with sin. We're no longer going to have to deal with the consequences and effects of sin. So we have that to look forward to. We know that one day God's going to put everything back. But how about right now? What about right now? What's in it for me right now? How do, how do I deal with this right now? Jesus tells us that right now he offers us abundant life right now we don't have to wait till the future we don't have to wait till jesus comes back we can have an abundant life right now we can live in 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 the way that god made us according to the identity that he has given to us as a matter of fact the bible tells us that when we put our faith in jesus christ he actually gives us a whole new identity we've looked at this verse before from second corinthians Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I want you to think about those words, in Christ, for a moment. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now in Christ. You're you're a new creation. Paul uses that phrase over and over and over throughout the Scriptures to indicate that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we give up trying to run our lives on our own, he gives us a brand new identity, one that's found in Him and in Him alone. And in that new identity, one of the things He promises us is that He will give us abundant life. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what Jesus wants for your life. If you're struggling with some of these areas right now, Jesus is the only answer to this. Only in Jesus Christ are you going to find that on that new identity. Only in Jesus Christ are you going to find a really abundant life. So if that's true, then, then, then how are we to relate to people in our culture that are struggling with this? If the only answer for them, the only real answer for them is the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do we make sure that we treat them in a way that won't become a barrier to sharing the gospel with them? first thing we have to do, obviously, is we have to love them. We have to love them. I mean, Jesus makes this pretty clear, doesn't he? He's asked, what are the great two commandments? First commandment, love God. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the kind of love he's talking about, we've talked about this before, doesn't mean you even have to like your neighbor. It means that you take and you put their interest ahead of your own. It means that you want the very best for them. You want the best for their life. You don't want them to struggle with this stuff. You want want them to have the abundant life that Jesus wants for them. That's how you love them. Second thing you have to have is compassion. Compassion. Again, Jesus is our example, isn't he? I mean, how many Jesus dealt with messed up people all the time. He got accused by the Jewish religious leaders of, uh, you know, doing stuff he shouldn't do because he had compassion on other people. Here's what it says about Jesus in the Scriptures about his compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We need to have compassion on these people. Did you realize that 
that people are, who are struggling in this area with, with gender dysphoria and, and, and gender issues, that they have much higher rates of depression. They have higher rates of suicide. Basically, they, they, they live very miserable lives. They're like that sheep without a shepherd, and we need to have some compassion upon them. What they don't need is us coming in and judging them for their behavior. What they need for us is to have compassion and to love them. Now, that doesn't mean that we shy away from the third thing that has to be present, and that is truth. We still have to have truth because, as Jesus said, only the truth is going to set us free, right? Here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John again. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and what will set you free? The truth will set you free. So we have to make sure that that we give them the truth. We need to, but we need to speak that truth in love. And that's going to look a little different depending on whether we're dealing with someone who is already a disciple of Christ, who is within the body of Christ, or someone who is outside the body, who is not yet a disciple of Christ. Paul gives us some really good guidance on how we're to do that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what he writes there. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And I think we'd all agree what we're talking about today, that fits within there, right? Sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, here's the important part, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, no, you don't, you don't judge those people. You don't, shot, you don't push them away. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, or drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those ins- is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You know, a lot of us have taken Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, don't judge, and we say, no, you can't judge sin. Well, that's not true. What he's really saying is don't be a judgmental person. The Bible's really clear here that within the body of Christ, we have a responsibility to confront those who are engaging in open, unrepentant sexual immorality. We have not only responsibility and a right to do that, but we we have to do that. We have a responsibility to do that. And when we do that, though, we need to we need to follow Paul's guidance in another of his letters, the one he wrote to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when he wrote this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What he's saying there is, yeah, you, you need to deal with this sin, but you do it for the purpose of restoring the other person. Now, sometimes, as hard as you try, that, that just doesn't happen. And there may be a time when you have to break fellowship with someone within the body of Christ who's engaging in any kind of sexual immorality, not just the kind that we're talking about today. But when we're dealing with those outside the church, it's a little more nuanced, isn't it? I mean, you're probably not going to be real effective by beating them over the head with your Bible. You're not going to be very effective by judging them or, or, or calling out their lifestyle. What we need to do is we need to introduce them to Jesus so that he can change their heart. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't hold to the convictions we have. And when we have an opportunity that we, we do the things that we talked about, when we were talking about sharing our faith just a few weeks ago, when we were looking at the book of Colossians, that we speak with gentleness and respect. That we take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. And that when those opportunities come up, that we're willing to be speak, speak boldly. Finally, one last thing, and this makes a lot of sense, right? We're in prayer. We need to respond in prayer. We ought to pray for people. I think that's pretty obvious. We need to pray for God to get a hold of their heart, as we've talked about before. We can't draw people to Jesus. Only God can do that. So we need to pray that God would show them their sin, that he would convict them of the sin, that the Holy Spirit would come into their life and do that work. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray that we'd have opportunities to share with them what the Bible says and that we would do that with just the right words and that we would do that boldly. Man, we've covered a lot this morning. And we've only really just scratched the surface, to be honest. This week when I was putting this sermon together, I had to cut about a bunch out just to get down to this really long sermon that you're listening to right now. But here's the thing. If, you, if you're struggling in this area... If you have more questions, I like I said, I'm far from an expert, but I'd love to have those discussions with you. Talk more about these things. Give you the tools that you might need to be able to, to, to work in the lives of someone else. I'd love to do that. Fact is that we would like this to just go away in a lot of ways, but it's not going to. And the chances are that we're going to have the opportunity to be salt and light in the life of someone else, whether that's at school or in your workplaces or in your homes or within your families or wherever it might be. And my prayer for you this morning is that after these few minutes together that you're a little better equipped to do that. Let's pray. Father, this is a really tough, tough thing. Your word's really clear on one hand, and yet we live in a world that has fallen so far away from what your word teaches. Father, we need a lot of wisdom here, wisdom that we could never generate on our own. So we ask that you would give that. Father, help us to love other people, to have compassion, but to not shy away from the truth either, Father, when we need to, when we need to share that. Father, I can't think of I just think about this, and I know how unprepared I am to deal with this. And, Father, I suspect that many of us are in that same boat. So, Father, would you just pour in your Holy Spirit? Would you pour in your wisdom? Help us to glorify you in the way that we deal with people who are struggling in their sin. Father, whether it be this sin or any other one, we ask that in Jesus' name.